This is a podcast from Minute Media. Gentlemen, let's broaden our minds. Lawrence. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast, season number three. I am so stinking excited. Hey, it's been too long, man. I'm glad to be back doing this with you. Yeah, who needs Christmas? Who needs New Year's? <laughs> who needs time off? Who needs families and children and hey, such? Yes, I've missed my buddy, man. I've missed you. And you know what? Here's what I think. Okay. It's like we were made for each other. Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> but if anyone else calls you a beast, I'll rip their lungs out. <laughs> The, I just want you to know that you are my number one guy. All right, everybody, welcome back for season three. We are starting off with a mammoth task. We are tackling Batman, Dark Knight, and a little bit of the Batman. I can't wait to see this. I, I think it's really promising looking. Yes, I think it's it's going to be more of a character study. It's going to be the darkness that, that the two movies that we were talking about jumped into and not the bright and shiny made for kids garbage. Oh my gosh. You know, I went through Batman 89. I studied Batman Returns. I studied Batman Forever. I studied Batman and Robin, along with Batman Begins, The Dark Knight, The Dark Knight Rises. I did it all, okay? Okay. I looked into all of it. Yeah. The Batman Burton franchise of the 80s Mm. and 90s went down so fast. It was just appalling how terrible those got so quickly. Yes. And... As it turns out, it's really just history repeating itself. I know. And it starts all the way back with the comic books. This darkness turned into bubblegum campy pop just to return to darkness, just to go back to pop. I mean, it just goes back and forth. I'm glad that they seem to be resisting the urge to lighten things up. Well, I mean, if we're talking about what's happened after the Dark Knight trilogy, if we're talking about Zack Snyder's Batman, he went in directions that I think a lot of us weren't happy with. And certainly when Joss Whedon got a hold of it in the Justice League, he turned it into a bright, colorful ball of puke. Right. And so, yeah, I think once again, where we've reached that point that people said, why did we go bright and colorful with Batman yet again when what truly works is our Dark Knight? You know, one of the things that excites me about the trail, it, it looks gritty and dark. The thing that caught my ear more than anything. Yeah was the Something in the Way by Nirvana underneath. And you really got to be listening for it. Yeah. And it's dark. And I'm like, man, that flashes me back to our Nirvana episode. Absolutely. And it was you you tuned me onto that. You're like, you got to see this preview right now. It's so good. And you start off with that sound of the ripping duct tape and the darkness that unfolds. And you've got a muscle car as the Batmobile. And you've got characters that are still characters. I mean, you see that villain and it harkens back to those guys, even from the campy Batman 1966 version, but it's got the darkness. And I'm really excited about who they have for the villain. I know. I'm sorry. Jim Carrey? No. Oh, no. no. Sorry. No, that's <laughs> the wrong Riddler. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, not that one. It does look like they're going to make the Riddler the bad guy. Yes. But he is that same dark Joker anarchist looking character yeah there's something going on there that's much much darker than a guy in a bright green spandex with question marks all over (laughs) awesome awesome well this is a mammoth task because people love these two movies yeah and people have strong feelings about this third one that's coming out yeah so let's just talk about this for a second the the comic book the character first came about back in 1939 So we're talking over 80 years of history here, and we're only going to do a couple episodes on this. So we can't really devote the time that a full analysis of the Batman character deserves. We we could spend probably an entire season just on the comic books and the cycles that it's gone through. Right. We're going to give it the justice that we can give it, but focus mainly on the two most iconic movies, that being Batman 89 and the Dark Knight from 2008. Exactly. Exactly. So you mentioned that Batman first appeared in Detective Comics number 27, March 30th, 1939. Yeah. So the concept came about because Superman had become a success for DC Comics. 
And this young guy named Bob Kane was interested in becoming involved in comic books. He loved to draw. He found out that Schuster and Siegel were making like $600 a week back in 1930s money, which was something to behold, right? This is the yeah. depression time, right? Detective Comics was trying to find another character. And so his answer was to come up with somebody that was kind of the antithesis of the Superman. You know, you mentioned that Bob Kane was right place, right time. Yeah. He was also very entrepreneurial. Yes. He saw them making some money and he's like, man, how can I get on board this train? It is important to note that Bob Kane's primary goal was to become rich and famous. Well, you know what? He did that. He did do that. Now, he, he, he used some tactics to... that uh, are questionable at the very best. Yeah, at, at, at best is questionable and, and downright dirty might be what some other people say. But we'll we can talk about that in a bit. OK. OK. So Bob Kane, to come up with an idea that he thinks is going to sell, decides to make something that is sort of the polar opposite of Superman. Right. He's not bright and shiny. He's dark. He's mysterious. And he he has three inspirations that lead him to creating what he would say would be either be the Birdman or the Batman. By the way, I watched Birdman last night. Jed, who did our intro in our first season, Jed, who's got his own podcast out there called Limos and Roses, be sure and check it out. He has been on me for like the last six years to watch this movie. And finally I did it and I loved it. You hated it, right? Dude, are you crazy? <laughs> I thought it was great. I could see why you hated it because it's not your type of movie, but I really, I truly enjoyed it. But I thought it was interesting that the name of that was The Birdman. And the two ideas that Bob Kane had were either The Birdman or The Batman. And his inspiration came from a book he read by Leonardo da Vinci, where he had a glider, a, a single man glider that he had drawn, and the wings look like the wings of a bat. And so he thought, wow, this is this is great. I'm going to take this and I'm going to combine it with my other hero, who is Zorro, right? And you'll notice a lot of times in the marquee when the family walks out of the movie theater, they've been watching The Mask of Zorro. Okay. So he's like, okay, I'm going to combine these guys. So what he comes up with is a guy in a red suit. A red suit. A red suit. And he has the Zorro style mask just over the eyes. Uh -huh. And he has literal bat wings coming out of his back. Right. Not, not a cape, but <clears throat> no. like fixed glider wings. Yeah, fixed glider wings. So he goes to his buddy, Bill Finger. Bill Finger is an important feature in our story. <sighs> we, will, we will talk about that in more detail as we go on down the line. But it is important to note that Bill Finger is the one that said, this is not quite right. To Bob Kane's credit, he knew it wasn't quite right. So he goes to his gifted and talented friend, Bill Finger, yeah. and says, well, what do you think? And he's like, well, he needs to, since he's fighting crime at night and he's a vigilante and stuff like that, he needs to be you know, masked and covered. And so that little domino mask, that's not really going to do the trick. So let's cover him up and give him a cow. Also, those fixed wings, it's not really practical. And what happens when he's walking around? So let's give him a cape. Right. And he also changed it from red to gray. Right, right. Because he's at night, right? He's got to blend into the shadows. Yeah. And so Bob Kane takes this creation, which also the, the cowl included the little bat-like ears on top, and takes it to DC Comics, then Detective Comics, and says, here's my character. They say, we love it. They sign a contract. And on the contract is his name, Detective Comics' name, and nobody else. Mm -hmm. Yes. And there's a whole, we watched a documentary on this called Batman and Bill. I recommend it to everybody, whether you are a comic book fan or not, you definitely need to watch this. Dive in because what happened that day was one of those make or break moments. Right. And Bob Kane chose to do the wrong thing and had to double down on it again and again throughout the course of his life. And it cost poor Bill Finger a career. Yeah. So. We got the comic books. He's immediately, he is a hit out of the gate. And interestingly, his first year, he's got guns. I know, right? And he's murking people. I mean, it's... <laughs> he really is a vigilante. Right. The no-kill Batman did not exist yet. This was a guy who was a vigilante who was going out and doing dirty work. And important to the idea of detective comics, he was solving mysteries. He was like a detective. And then things changed. Okay. So we can keep on going on the comic books, but we're here to talk about movies. I want to talk about 1943, 
Batman's first appearance in film. It was a serial that was really pretty much just World War II propaganda. Uh, you had a evil mustache twirling Japanese guy as the villain. Uh-huh. I am Dr. Decker, humble servant of his majesty Hirohita. By divine destiny, my country shall destroy the democratic forces of evil in the United States to make way for the new order. But interestingly, this is the first time the concept of the Batcave appeared. Really? Okay. Yeah. And in the movie? Yes, in this, you know, it was a serial, you know, like okay, the, the kid okay. serials yeah. from the 1940s. This is 43. So you've got the you've got the Batman. He's got the Batcave in this, which is the first time you see that. And also the concept of him going to it through the grandfather clock, which is both of those things have just become iconic. But most people don't know about this old thing or that they came about from a movie and not from the comic books originally. Interesting. Um, it was also the first time you had a thin Alfred. In the comics, he had been this little portly fat dude. Okay. And the guy who played Batman in that was named Lewis Wilson. He didn't appear in film again until 1949. It was another 16-episode serial. And this one was Batman and Robin. Robert Lowry had played Batman. And in that one, we had Jane Addams as Vicki Vale. Vicky Vale. The one thing I know about old time Vicky Vale. Yeah. I know she was a, a reporter and I know she had red hair. That's it. I don't think we could have sold Kim Basinger as a redhead. No, but thankfully we got Nicole Kidman as Dr. Chase Meridian a couple of pictures later. Well, I wish I could say that my interest in you was purely professional. Well, as nice as she looked, she didn't say that far. True. Right. Okay. Sure. So <laughs> by the so by the 1950s, comic books had really increased in popularity, and they had basically become the TikTok or the violent video games of the 1950s. That's right. They had the parents and the psychologists and all of the adults of the time were saying, corrupting the minds of the youth. I know, right? This is the MTV of the 1940s. Well, and you've got Batman out marking people, right? He had a machine gun on the Batmobile. So what happened is a crusade started against them. And ultimately what they did is they created their own governing morality board. And there were rules that were put in place to censor the comic books to keep them from corrupting the minds of the youth. Okay. Now, we said a bit ago, you know, we've got this idea of Batman does not kill, right? I'm no executioner. Yes. Now, people have tread on that rule. I'm kill you. You idiot! You made me, remember? And so the question is, where'd the rule come from? Right. It turns out that it probably came from this sensor board. Interesting. As a matter of fact, it's definitely came from this sensor board. What they said is superheroes cannot kill villains. They can fight the villains, the villains can die, but the villains cannot be murdered by the superhero. They have to die as a result of their own machinations. So if, say, the Joker falls off a gigantic cathedral, <laughs> that's okay. Uh, well, it depends. <laughs> but if Batman takes a grenade and sticks it in his pants like he does in Batman mm -hmm. Returns, yeah. that would be wrong. Well, yeah. Or if he throws a grapple hook around his ankle and then ties the other end to a two-ton gargoyle, does that one run afoul? I would say it probably would, yeah. Interesting. But I think that's key to the beauty of this character. If you have a Batman that kills, you just have a vigilante. It is that one rule, which we can talk about more, especially when we get to Dark Knight, that he does not kill that makes his character more interesting. Okay, that is interesting because, like you said, in the Dark Knight, that is his rule. That is the rule he will not break. Right. That's the one rule. I will not be an executioner. In Batman 89, he doesn't have that rule. Doesn't seem to. No. In fact, he goes to the Joker and he's like, I'm going to kill you. Yeah, right after he threw some guy down a gigantic bell shaft. The, the ninja who happened to appear at the top of the cathedral? The ninja who just happened to show up. But we can get into those okay. All right. when we find flaws. Now, let me, let me say this. Let yes. me say this okay. now. Yes. We will discuss some flaws with these movies, but keep in mind, we are diehard fans. We total love these movies. fanboys, so please don't think that we don't love these movies. 
We just, we have to point out the things that are not quite perfect. Okay. So comic books, finally, you know, they got reined in a little bit. They're still escalating in popularity. And one of the guys who was a huge comic book collector, like filled his parents' garage with the comic books he bought was a guy named Michael Uslan. So back in 1965, they had the very first Comic-Con. I heard about this. This was in like a ghetto part <laughs> of New York City in yeah. the basement, like in this scummy hotel that and actually burned down later. Yeah, yeah. There, the, I think the original one was 64 that was in New York. Okay. And it was... And it was bad. That one was bad, but this one was also bad. The said the, the one in 65 is the one that became a recurring thing. Okay. And it wasn't in just in, you know, some guy's basement or something, but it was the hotel in Detroit. And yes, there were bums asleep on the floor <laughs> in, the, in lobby. the lobby. Yes. And then as they walk through to the convention area, they have to walk through the bar. And as they're walking through the bar, little Michael Uslan says, Oh my gosh, that's auto binder. Like he would go on, he, at the time he was doing Captain Marvel. He would go on to create Supergirl. He was a huge figure in comic books and he's having a, you know, a whiskey sour up at the bar. And, and come here, kiddies. It's exactly what he's doing. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Come here, kid. He go, and he says, do you want to meet the guy who created Batman? And Michael Uslan is like, I'm going to get to meet Bob Kane. And Otto Binder says, here, I'd like you to meet Bill Finger. Who? Well, say, well. Who is this? <laughs> so this this Comic Con, this first one, was the first time that Bill Finger had come out in public and talked about how big a factor he had been in the creation of Batman and all of the villains, which is huge. And I, I don't mean all, but I mean Joker, Catwoman, Catwoman. Yeah. some some pretty big deals. Batmobile. A lot of times, Gotham Bat City. I think. Yeah, back in these days. They had ghostwriters just like they do now. Sure. But this went beyond that. This was the guy who was truly creating all of the storylines, the brilliance behind all of the villains. And Bob Kane was drawing the pictures and he was along for the ride. And it wasn't as though he contributed nothing. Right. But the idea that the guy who was primarily responsible for the story ideas got no credit at all is truly troubling. Yeah. Okay. So. One year later, something happens, 1966. <laughs> yes, Mr. Adam West and Burt Ward and Julie Newmar and Burgess Meredith, they create Batman 66, the TV show. Or the shark repellent. Oh, the shark repellent. Oh, yes. The spray can shark repellent. I had forgotten all about that. That's fantastic. So Michael Uslan is, at this point, a slightly older kid. You know, he's in his teenage years. And he is both excited and mortified at what is going on. Because now the world knows about Batman, which is exciting to him because he loves Batman so much. The troubling part is he's a goofball. Yeah. He's pow and kablam and pop. Michael Uslan is like, this is not my Batman. Holy campy spoof, Batman. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So Batman, the series definitely brings a lot of spotlight onto the Batman character, right? Lunchboxes action figures adam west becomes a star julie newmar i think described him as the cary grant of tv i mean he was just this cool guy and what michael usland says when he sees this is i am going to make it my mission in life to show people the real batman yeah. the batman of the dark the batman that is mysterious and troubled and torn and not kapow blam pow I would say, like Bill Finger, Michael Uslan is the unsung hero of Batman lore. I've given away the storyline here, but he is involved in every Batman movie from the 1980s on. I'm surprised we haven't heard more about this guy. Okay, so if you, if you watch the documentaries, he's always there. Doesn't matter which Batman movie, right. the, he is there. And what's interesting is he goes to college, 70s now, goes to law school, and during this time, the University of Indiana says, hey, 
we are going to allow people to pitch us ideas for college courses that may be unusual and we'll decide whether they get credit or not. Right. And Michael Uslan is like, perfect. I'm going to teach a class on comic books and their relationship to mythology and to history. And he goes in to make his pitch and the dean looks down his nose at him and said, oh, you're the funny books guy, right? Yeah. He says, there's no way I am going to approve comic books. Don't get me wrong. I loved them. I read them when I was a kid. Cheap entertainment is what he called them. Yes. Just cheap entertainment. And so Michael Uslan says, are you familiar with the story of Moses? And the dean says, yes. He says, can you tell me the story of Moses? And the dean says, well, um, his parents were worried about him, afraid he was going to be killed. So they put him in a basket, sent him down the river. He was ultimately picked up by the royal family, raised as one of their own, but went on to be a hero of his own people. Uh And then Michael Uslan said, now you said that you read Superman, right? The dean says, yes. He goes, can you tell me the story of Superman's origin? And the dean said, Yeah, his origin was he started off on Krypton as a baby. His parents were worried about him dying. And so they (laughs) sent him off on a ship and he was raised by other parents. Mr. Uslan, your course is approved. (laughs) I love that story, man. Oh, thank you, Mr. Dean. I will take it and run with it. Now, here's something that you don't know. Okay. So Uslan, truly appreciating what he had in his hands with this college course, right? won fame by anonymously calling local newspaper reporters and TV stations and complaining about the course. Really? As a result, the news and the newspapers, the TV is like, oh, this is interesting. This is a, somebody who's teaching a college course on comics and it's dumb. Let's go check it out. And they all showed up. There were newspaper articles that came out. There were news stories that came out. And he immediately became famous from teaching this class. That's fantastic. I heard that Stanley calls him out of the blue. Hey, man, just want to tell you, thank you for legitimizing comic books. Yeah. And then you had guy Saul Harrison, who was the VP of DC at the time. He invited him to come visit them in New York City. Check it out. He taught this class for quite a few years, actually. And he had intended to have these guys each semester have different guest speakers come in and speak. But he found out that Denny O'Neill, the guy who created Ross Al Ghul. Yes. He was the one that everybody always asked for. And so he's just like, okay, well, I'm just going to make him the regular invitee. And so Danny O'Neill, who's a huge part of the Batman canon, became a regular speaker at this college class as well. Ra's al Ghul is the bad guy in Batman Begins, if you remember that. Yeah. The Liam Neeson character. Exactly. Okay. So he ends up participating on talk shows and radio shows. And ultimately, this spins into a job for him as as a production attorney for United Artists. That's right. And so he meets somebody there who's got an inside deal. He pitches this idea of making the Batman movie, but making it in the Dark Knight style. Now, Dark Knight had been coined, but wasn't the comic book yet. And so on October 3rd, my birthday, 1979, I was four years old. Hey, They got DC Comics to option them the rights to Batman movie and Batman cartoons, and they formed Bat Films, Inc. on that day. 1979. Okay, let's talk about what was going on in 1979. Sure. So I'm old enough to remember 1979. Yeah. During the 70s and early 80s, Super Friends was on all the time. Yeah. Did you watch Super Friends? Absolutely. Wonder Twin Powers activate and all yeah. that stuff. Right? I always I always thought it was an injustice for the Super Twin who could only do form of water. <laughs> what? The uh, other guy gets to be any animal and you have to be <laughs> ice, water, or vapor. That's it? I'm a tidal wave. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bucket of water. But uh, and so in 1978. Richard Donner released Superman the movie. Right. And of course, a couple of years prior to that, in 1977, you have Star Wars. Right. And so now you're having these big blockbuster sort of popcorn entertainment movies. Mm-hmm. But really, the, the father of the Batman 
89 movie is Superman 1978. We talked about, and please listeners, go back and listen to our Superman 1 and 2 versus Man of Steel. Um, we did that episode with John Reed from the 30-something movie podcast. Also go subscribe to that podcast because it is flat out awesome. We talked about that history in detail on Superman. 78 happens and they say, oh, wow, it turns out that a comic book movie can make money. Right. Which Warner Brothers also did Superman. They see this opportunity with these guys who are like, hey, we want to do Batman next. And it's the next logical step. But it was 1979. And we know Batman didn't happen for another almost 10 years. Batman. Batman. Can somebody tell me what kind of a world we live in where a man dressed up as a bat gets all of my press? This town needs an enema. Yeah. So what the heck happened? I don't know exactly why that took so long, but I can tell you what happened in that span. Yeah. Imagine you're holding the Batman property. Right. And you're watching the box office. You're like, holy cow, Superman's out there. It's making money. People love it. It's fantastic. Superman 2 comes along in 1981. People are like, hey, this is great. It's a little bit corny, but it's, it's fantastic. People love it. 1983 comes along, Superman 3 comes out. Eh, that movie sucked. No. That movie sucked. <laughs> and it was then, a bit of the Richard Pryor show. but It, it was the Richard Pryor show. It was, yeah. And then in 1987, you have Superman 4, The Quest for Peace. Now imagine you're holding the Batman property and you see that piece of crap that comes up on, on the screen. Biggest turd that Superman ever shot. Is that turd worse than jaws 4 we will find out later on this summer that's gonna be fun when we we do do our worst of the number fours (laughs) we know that bat films inc is formed october 3rd 1979 yes we know that 10 years go by before the batman comes to the movie theaters so in addition to what happened with superman movies some other interesting things happened okay a guy named frank miller this is a guy who at six years old went to his mom and said I want to draw comics for the rest of my life. That's all I want to do. He had it as a mission from six. He knew he wanted to go to New York City because that's where many of his comic book heroes were from. Ultimately, that's what he did. He got a job as a comic artist and he was very, very good. But he, like Michael Uslan, wanted to go back to that original concept of the Dark Knight detective mystery vigilante character. And so in 1986, he released a series called The Dark Knight Returns. There are a few storylines that play into both of these movies. One is The Killing Joke. One is The Dark Knight Returns. One is The Long Halloween. And then the other is Batman Year One. That's right. I get a strong feeling with the Batman that's coming out in March that we're going to get a lot of Batman Year One. I'm right. not sure, but I'm hopeful. I think you're right. You know what else happened in 1985? Other than Back to the Future? Other than Back to the Future. Yeah. Same summer, you have this movie called Pee-wee's Big Adventure that comes out. Yeah. Directed by this guy named Tim Burton. Yeah. So here's the story on that one, right? Yeah. So the reason they had taken so long to make Batman into a movie is because they couldn't get a good script. They couldn't find a script that worked. They had been talking about Bill Murray as Batman with Eddie Murphy as Robin. And Ivan Reitman directing. Yeah. We would have had a Richard Lester version of Batman had we probably had either one of those guys direct, right? We would have Gremlins or Ghostbusters version of Batman, and that wouldn't have been right. Let's say that again. Ivan Reitman, yeah. Bill Murray as Batman, yeah. Eddie Murphy as Robin. Hysterical, but not the Batman that we have. Not what we loves. want. No, not what we want. And I, I want to get into casting here in a little bit because I've got a whole, you know, when you have a movie that's developed for over 10 years, yeah. there's going to be a lot of names associated with it. Sure. Some of them will, will blow your skirt up. Yeah, they're going to blow your mind. So Warner Brothers was ready to shelf the project. They couldn't get a script. They were going to put it on the shelf and say, we're not making this movie. Bob Kane got on his knees and prayed for a savior. And that savior's name was Tim Burton. Wait till they get a load of me. So Tim had been working for Disney. 
He had made a couple of shorts. One's called Frank and Weenie. Yeah. The other one is called Vincent. Okay. Both movies I saw when I was a kid and I, I little shorts that I saw when I was a kid. And I love it. They're weird, very Tim Burton right. style. Sure. But he wasn't anybody famous at this point. And so he had found some favor with this lady named Bonnie Lee who worked over at Warner Brothers. And she convinced him to come over and join Warner Brothers. Well, another prodigy of Bonnie Lee is a guy named Sam Hamm. Yeah, Sam Hamm. And so Bonnie Lee is really, I mean, she's the glue that brought these things together. And she said, hey, Sam, could you come over to Tim's office? I would love for you guys to talk about some stuff. And Sam's like, okay, yeah, sure. And so they go over, they shoot the breeze for a while. And then Tim Burton's like, you know, what about this Batman script? What do you think we could do on that? And so Sam Hamm, you know, secretly is jumping for joy. It's like, oh yeah, you know, if you're interested in that, I guess I could probably, you know, look at it. Right. And he ends up developing a script, which becomes basically the first two acts of Batman. Act three is something we need to talk about when we talk about warts. Yeah. So Warren Scarron comes in later on as a writer. and He touches up some stuff that Sam Hamm has done, but Sam Hamm couldn't do anything at the time because there was a writer's guilt strike going on. That's he right. couldn't come in and make adjustments during the movie. So they were kind of winging things a little bit. Listen, Jack Nicholson, when he's carrying Kim Basinger up to the top of the cathedral, <laughs> says, says, where am I going? Like, what, what am I doing here? And they're like, we're not sure what's going on just yet, but we're working on it. Right. So here's the origin story on this, on that thing. Okay. The night before, yes. I'm not even kidding. The night before, Tim Burton and Peter Goober go and watch Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> and the last scene of Phantom of the Opera is him taking her up in this tower. And so they're like, we should do that. Hey, great idea. Let's do that. Oh, my gosh. Here's the other half of the rest of the story. Yes. Kim Basinger, who is currently banging John Peters, who's the other producer on Batman. <laughs> Right. Says, well, wait a minute. Where's Vicki Vale? She needs to go up in the tower. She wasn't supposed to go in the tower. It was just supposed to be Batman chasing Joker. That's it. Oh, my gosh. And so he's like, you know what, honey? I agree with you since you're laying in bed next to me. <laughs> oh, my god. So Kim Basinger, John Peters, Peter Goober, and Tim Burton got together and created the third act out of underwear and chocolate. So <laughs> <laughs> Underwear and chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> so rewind just a little bit bonnie lee gets tim burton over she introduces him to this guy from the groundlings named paul rubens yeah who's interested in making a movie based on this character he had for a stand-up routine called peewee herman aging mr herman mr herman you have a telephone call at the front desk and i've seen that stand-up routine and it is Friggin' hilarious. And when they meet each other, they're two peas in a pod. And then they decide, hey, you know what? We need somebody to write the music for this thing. And Paul Rubin says, oh, I know this guy. His name's Danny Elfman. He plays with this band called Oingo Boingo. He might be a good fit. You sent me a clip from the 1976 gong show. Yeah. Where the Knights of Oingo Boingo. The Mystic Knights of Oingo Boingo, yes. We can talk more detail about that whenever we get to our composers, but man, there's some fascinating How history. Danny Elfman came through all that is incredible. <laughs> so before Warner Brothers was completely ready to greenlight Tim to direct the project, they needed to see that he could make a movie that would put money in the bank. Yep. So Tim does this other movie that you might have heard of called Beetlejuice. 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 <laughs> what are your qualifications? Ah, well, I attended Juilliard. I'm a graduate of the Harvard Business School. I travel quite extensively. I lived through the Black Plague, and I had a pretty good time during that. I've seen The Exorcist about 167 times, and it keeps getting funnier every single time I see it. Not to mention the fact that you're talking to a dead guy. Now, what do you think? It's a fantastic movie. And that's where you get, I mean, Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis get their start in it. Yep. You get uh, Catherine O'Hara, who goes on to do Home Alone. The principal from Ferris Bueller's Day Off is in it. How have you not said Winona Ryder yet? I was waiting on you to say Winona, Winona Ryder. I was young enough at that point that it was okay for me to have a total crush on her. Well, and Tim Burton uses her later in Edward Scissorhands. Yeah. And then, of course, you have the amazing performance by Michael Keaton. It's showtime. So... 
you got some pieces that are starting to fall together. We've got a director who has a vision. We've got a script that's got legs. We just need good financing and a star's face. I've got some great stuff on casting. We'll come back to that here after we go through the beginning and the origins of the Dark Knights. Like I always say, if you got to go, go with a smile. Go with a smile. So interestingly, at this exact same time, 1986, there's a young man, 1920, comic book fan. He sends a letter. He sent actually quite a few letters that end up getting published. I'm about to blow your mind right here. Are you ready for this? Yes. Okay. So he sends a letter to Marvel, Captain America issue, and says, let me congratulate you. You got me reading Captain America again. He goes on to give some ideas. Now think about the movies when I say this, all right? Here's what the letter says. Okay. The fact that Captain America is a symbol of the American dream creates a number of story problems. What type of man would have the audacity to proclaim himself a living symbol of America? So he's going to this psychological weight, right? of of Captain America. And he says, what exactly does Cap represent? Our government isn't nearly as upfront or virtuous as the elected officials would have us believe. Does the captain unquestioningly accept whatever the current American policy is, or does he formulate opinions of his own? I mean, that's the Avengers plot line. Yeah. In 1986. Yeah. 30 years before the movie comes out. Who is this guy? His name is David S. Goyer. Yeah. He would go on just a year or two later to write some movies. The first one that got made was a terrible script, but he met a guy who was excited about it. who didn't speak very good English. His name was Jean-Claude Van Damme. (laughs) And the movie was about a prison. First, let me just, I got to tell you this story, all right? Okay. So he's a huge comic book fan. Yeah. And he's also decides he wants to be a writer, wants to be a screenwriter. And he reads an article about this agent who is had become an agent at like 22 years old, which is really young to become an agent. But he thinks this guy's got some moxie. He's got some drive. He's hungry, right? Yeah. I'm going to give him a call. Okay. So he's in college and he calls this agent and he gets a secretary and she's like, okay, I'll let him know you call. He's like, okay. He knows he's not going to call back. So he calls again the next day. And the next day, and the next day, for 45 days straight. And finally, on the 45th day, the agent picks up the phone and he's like, who the is this? And he's like, well, my name is David S. Goyer. He's like, I don't know why I threw the S in there. I guess it just made me think it sounded, I sounded important that way. Um, and I want to be a writer. And the guy's like, listen, send me your script. I'm probably not going to represent you, but send me your script and don't call here anymore. So he sends him the script and the agent calls him back. Nice. No, he doesn't. Two weeks go by and he's like, okay, I'm going to start calling again. (laughs) You asked for it, buddy. (laughs) So two weeks goes by, he calls again and the agent's like, you know what? The script sucks, but I want to represent you anyway, because you've got drive. You've got something here that can become something. And pretty soon that agent introduces him to Jean-Claude Van Damme, who is excited about the script that he has written where a cop infiltrates a prison and the name is changed from Dustin to a movie you might've heard of called Death Warrant. Came out in 1990. A few years later, about 10 scripts in, he writes a script based on a comic book and it becomes Marvel's first movie. First real movie. Blade with Wesley Snipes. You want to know what's crazy? They optioned Blade from Marvel for $125,000. Come on, man. I mean, the franchise is probably probably a multi-hundreds of millions of dollars, if not a billion at this point, from the three that came. And the second one they got for $175,000 just because it was part of the contract. They didn't have any choice. It's about to be rebooted again. But keep in mind... This is what started Marvel in the movies, right? It's amazing. Every Marvel thing you saw before this was TV, like Thor on the Incredible Hulk TV series. Right. Nothing good. By the way, there's a movie that never got made on the Fantastic Four. I think we got to do a series on the curse of the Fantastic Four because it's a great comic book series that has never produced a good movie. But Roger Corman was supposed to do a Fantastic Four movie back in the early 90s. Jay Underwood is Johnny Storm and it never came to see the light of day, but they filmed the whole movie. 
And there's a documentary on We got to dust that thing off we and gotta, watch it. Yeah, somehow. we got we to find it. By the way, the paycheck that he got for Death Warrant went out and bought an Azuzu Trooper, which got stolen the same day. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad to see that he did better for himself later on down the road. So Blade happens. He's doing well. And in 2002, a guy pitches a Batman reboot to Warner Brothers. The guy's name? Joss Whedon. Interesting. And Warner Brothers said, nah, yeah. no thanks. Yeah. So what happens is they think it's a good idea to reboot Batman. This is just the wrong script for it. And so they start sending out calls to directors they're interested in. Well, one of the directors that they're interested in is a guy who has done two movies. One of them was fantastic, called Memento. Right. The other one was Insomnia, which is okay. I didn't really care for it that much. Okay. But he's done a couple of season movies, right? Right. And he has been trying to make this movie based on people going into the mind of others during their dream state, this idea for a movie called Inception. But the studios that he's talking to all say, this is absurdly expensive (laughs) and you are not qualified at this point to do it. You know, see if you can make an action movie and then come back and see us. And this is the same time that Warner Brothers is sending out calls. And so this guy named Christopher Nolan's wife, Emma Thomas, gets a message that says, hey, this is Warner Brothers. We want to know if Chris might be interested in doing something with Batman. And she thinks, no way. Yeah, he's a chance. He's a hyper-intelligent, independent filmmaker. And have you seen the Batman movies lately? No way. Right. But she tells him anyway. And Christopher Nolan says, Actually, I think there's a story on the Batman that hasn't been told yet. Now, are you familiar with Darren Aronofsky? He did Requiem for a Dream and Pi and the Noah movie with Russell Crowe. <laughs> right, right. Yes. I heard he was attached at one point. Moving on. So Christopher Nolan says, I want to do a movie that truly tells the origin story of Batman. Everybody knows the kid with his parents outside the theater. They're murdered. Etc. Etc. Right. Tell me, kid, you ever dance with the devil by the pale moonlight? But what happens in between there and the Batman? The only thing we really see in the comic books is he dedicates his life to making himself the best mentally and physically that he can. But that's it. Christopher Nolan says, "I think there's a story that can be told there that is worth telling." But there are a few things that. I need to establish we're not doing the same stuff that the Batman have been doing in the past. We are going to do a movie that could really happen. Yeah. It's based in reality. Right. And he admits, you know, this is cinematic reality, but we want to be as true to real life as we can possibly be. Okay. So before we go any further, for me, I wrote down some big ideas between these movies that I want to discuss. Okay. And one of the big ideas about the Dark Knight series, the, you know, the, the Christopher Nolan Batman series, yeah. is the plausibility of these movies. Right. Okay. So he went above and beyond, in my opinion, to make sure that these things are, as you say, cinematic realism. Right. In Batman Begins, for instance, Christian Bale's character, Bruce Wayne, goes across and studies and becomes this ninja guy. He studies from Ra's al Ghul and he has these armor things on his arm because he's fighting swords. And so that that's why he has those armor plated forearm things. Sure. Okay, so with the talking about the plausibility and the producers and the studio said, well, we really feel like it needs to have the Batmobile in some capacity. Just really not a Batman movie without the Batmobile. So Christopher Nolan's like, okay, you know, I think I can work with that. So he goes to his production designer. His name is Nathan Crowley. And Nathan's like, okay, well, what do you what do you have in mind? And Christopher Nolan's like, well, I think it's going to be some sort of combination between a Humvee and a 1970s Lamborghini. <laughs> and so he's like, okay. And so he actually went to like Toys R Us or Hobby Lobby and he got a model kit of both a Humvee and a Lamborghini and made a hybrid in the mo- in like his living room. Uh-huh. And that became the infamous tumbler from the Christopher Nolan movies. Yeah. He said it looked like crap. But <laughs> but ultimately it, it led to the it led to that Batmobile and it led to what Christopher Nolan says was his first contribution to the script, which is, does it come in black? 
Oh yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. So it really interestingly, Bruce Wayne drives a Lamborghini in both Batman Begins and in The Dark Knight. And it is a convertible Marcelago, which means bat. You got it. I have given a name to my Lamborghini <laughs> and it is the bat. <laughs> Fantastic. Okay. So after David Goyer sold his script and got his Isuzu stolen, he decided, hey, I'm a writer now. I'm going to have some business cards made up. And so he had business cards that just said, David S. Goyer, writer. And he's pretty proud of them. He takes them back to his screenwriting teacher, who's Nelson Getting at USC, and says, look, look what I've got. And Getting looks at this and he's like, throw this away. <laughs> he's like, what? Why? He goes, you're not a writer. You are a human being who writes for a living, throw these away and go live life. It's a Hemingway quote, to write about life, you got to live it. And so David throws away his business cards and he starts traveling the world, goes to Africa, goes to Europe, and he also goes to Tibet. Okay. He didn't know that later on, Christopher Nolan would be calling him up and saying, hey, I've got this idea for Batman and how he becomes Batman. And I'm thinking that he needs to go through some sort of training like in the Orient or Asia. And David says, you know what? I just got back from Tibet and I think I got a good idea how we can make that work. I would say that his travel probably influenced the Dark Knight on why he went to Hong Kong as well. Exactly. So Christopher and David S. Goyer, they write this movie called Batman Begins, which is fantastic. I watched it in preparation for what we're doing but I can't get distracted on it because what we're really here to talk about is The Dark Knight. Now, David had written some treatments for sequels to Batman Begins, and they had the Joker and they had Harvey Dent. And in it, as per the comic books, Harvey's scarring of his face happens because the Joker throws acid on him from the witness chair. That was what was going to happen in the movie. Now, we still have a similar scene, right? We've got Harvey Dent who gets a gun pointed at him from a witness in the witness chair and takes it away. But imagine the anticipation of all of your comic book fanboys when, you know, he jumps up. He's there like, oh, Two-Face is about to happen now. And it doesn't. In case you missed that scene, it does happen in Batman Forever. Tommy Lee Jones is the district attorney, Harvey Dent, yep. and gets acid thrown on his face while Batman is sitting in court in the most ridiculous looking thing of all time. <laughs> is this the Val Kilmer one? Yes. Okay. It's the last one I watched before I watched Batman Begins. I'm just, I, I got to be honest. I love Batman, but I could not bring myself to watch the Clooney versions. You are really selling yourself short. I'm telling you. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't believe you. <laughs> but anyway, you do see that courtroom scene and Batman sitting there in his bat outfit in court. It looks so ridiculous, but we're not here to talk about Batman forever. <laughs> okay. So, so David Goyer has written these treatments, but really when it comes to, he's got, he's got a storyline that becomes the dark Knight. but Christopher Nolan's brother, Jonathan Nolan is also a major factor on writing the script for part two for the dark Knight that we're here to talk about today one of the things that you mentioned you kind of referred to at the end of batman begins gordon says hey we're having a little bit of a problem we've got this guy who's causing trouble and he shows batman a joker card in a ziploc bag right and when i saw that in a the theater people gasped yeah People were like, oh my gosh, that's incredible. And it's Joker. So there was a lot of anticipation for the Dark Knight. Yeah. And the Joker character. Right. I think a lot of people wanted him to bring back Jack Nicholson. <laughs> that wouldn't have been necessarily a horrible choice. Uh, Except then we get what we get. Yeah. You want to know how I got these scars? My father was a drinker and a fiend. And one night, he goes off crazier than usual. Mommy gets the kitchen knife to defend herself. He doesn't like that. Not one bit. So, me watching, he takes the knife to her, laughing while he does it. He turns to me. And he says, why so serious? 
Okay, Jason, tell you a story about a young man who loses two loved ones on the same day, is totally distraught, leaves home, goes to learn how to be a fighter, to learn how to be a man, comes back and becomes an enforcer of the law and becomes a hero to the people. Yeah, Bruce Wayne? Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt. Okay. So I don't just say that because I'm like grasping at straws here. Teddy Roosevelt was the guy that Christopher Nolan told everybody as they started Batman Begins. This is the biography you need to read because this is our Bruce Wayne. See, that's interesting that you say that because I have always seen the Dark Knight, Christopher Nolan, Batman. Yeah. As George W. Bush. Oh, wow. Because, and let me paint this picture for you. Yeah, go ahead. This is post 9-11. You have a very serious person about fighting terrorism and using whatever means necessary to bring justice to those who are inflicting pain and willing to bend a few rules to get the job done. And it just kind of fits that time slot for me. That's why I I always thought it was this. George W. Bush. Yeah. So tell me about Teddy Roosevelt. Well, so Teddy Roosevelt, it's not his mom and his dad. Well, it's his mom, but not his dad. His dad actually died of cancer when he was very young. He didn't tell anybody that he had cancer. Just suddenly he's gone. So he grows up. He gets married. He lives in the house with his mother and his new bride. And she is expecting a child. And his wife dies in childbirth. And just within an hour or two later, his mother dies. Both die on the same day. He leaves He leaves his newborn with nurses to take care of her because that's the way things went back in the late 1800s, I guess. Right. And he goes out and becomes a rough ride. He goes out and lives on the plane and probably is contemplating his own death, much like Bruce Wayne is doing. Okay. Right? Yeah. Get as dirty and nasty and hard as I can get. And then he comes back and he becomes a street cop riding on a bicycle who ultimately becomes commissioner of the police who ultimately becomes president of the United States. Incredible. Yeah. I did, I did not know that story. Blow my mind. All right. Now, for his inspiration for The Dark Knight, Christopher Nolan looked at the Joker in his debut in 1940, the original Batman comic. Right. Was it April? Of 1940, I believe? It just says the spring issue of 1940. Okay. So I think the month before, Robin had gotten introduced. And then the next month, Batman gets his own named comic book. And we get introduced to the Joker and Catwoman. Meow. Woo! That's a big one. Wow. So there's that one. He's looking at that. He's looking at The Killing Joke from 1988. Yeah. And as we discussed before, the 1996 series, The Long Halloween which retold Harvey Dent's origin. By the way, the Dark Knight nickname first applied to Batman in Batman number one, 1940, story by Bill Finger. Finger. All right, so Christopher Nolan goes back to the guy who had done cinematography for him for Memento, guy named Wally Feister, fantastic cinematographer. This was the first film, mainstream feature, that utilized IMAX 70 millimeter cameras. That's incredible. There were, I think they used four IMAX cameras. They mm-hmm. were huge and heavy and bulky. 70 millimeter cameras. That's incredible. There were, I think they used four IMAX cameras. Mm-hmm. They were huge and heavy and bulky. $500 million a piece. No, sorry. Five. <laughs> sorry, I got my words wrong. $500,000 a piece. Yes. And one of them was destroyed during the joker bazooka scene under the street in that uh and another one was destroyed in the dark knight rises when selena kyle runs over it with the motorcycle so <laughs> basically a million dollars worth of lost cameras and just a couple of accidents but that's those cameras are why you get those incredible city scope yeah. scenes of gotham which is actually chicago but it's incredible yeah it's it, it gives you a much taller picture and there's 20 in the dark night there's 28 minutes of imax footage and that includes the semi-flip which is awesome awesome and not cgi they flipped a freaking semi and how are you going to get a semi going vertical 
you got to have IMAX. That's the that's the aspect ratio that's going to give you something tall enough to get that. And then the other is all of that opening scene with the bank robbery and the Joker. Yeah, it's fantastic. So good. So clear and crisp. Oh, man, I love it. That opening scene, and I know we'll break down the movie, but it's such a rush to start the movie with a bank robbery heist that could be its own movie. Yeah. Let me touch on that real quick. Okay. I just want to say this now. So I recognized the mask, and it took me a while to figure out where I had recognized it from. It's from a Stanley Kubrick movie called The Killing. The guys, it's got the guy um, who's in, he's he's also in Dr. Strangelove. He's the dirty cop in The Godfather. He's the main character in this one. This is the one that I mentioned way back when we were talking about Rodney Dangerfield and Caddyshack. Rodney Dangerfield's first appearance in a movie is like as an extra at a bar in The Killing, which involves a bank robbery gone wrong where they wear clown mask. And it's this exact clown mask. But then watching something and they're like, oh, this mask was inspired by the clown mask that Cesar Romero wore in one of the Batman episodes where he's like doing the opera singer thing. I'm like, wait a minute, it can't be both. Well, it is. It's that mask from the killing, but painted with the face paint like the one from Cesar Romero. Yes. Cesar Romero is the guy who played Joker in the Batman 66 series. Yes. Hello, kiddies. Meet the Joker. <laughs> Which our buddies Brad and Jeff did a episode at the a film by on the killing by Stanley Kubrick. If you have yeah. an interest, go check that out. Yeah, definitely check out a film by. That's where I got my information about Rodney Dangerfield. <laughs> a film by dot, dot, dot. Yep. Great podcast. So I just want to take a step back here, right? How many hundreds of millions of dollars Warner Brothers puts on the line to make Batman Begins? Right. With a guy who's directed two movies. If you don't count the cheap, you know, I filmed this with my buddies on the weekend thing that he did to first start out. Right. He's done two movies. One of them is an Oscar movie, but it's not a big budget movie. Sure. He's an indie filmmaker and they're trusting him with the Batman franchise. Is that nuts? That is nuts. It is nuts. You want to get nuts? (laughs) (laughs) You're exactly right. I mean, let's get nuts. I don't I don't really understand it. But in both of these series, they turn the Batman franchise over to. Tim Burton, yeah. who had done Pee-wee's Big Adventure and Beetlejuice. That's it. Not exactly action movies. Nope. Not comic book. Not certainly not superhero movies. And then Christopher Nolan, who had done Memento and Insomnia, not superhero movies. No. Right. And they're throwing money like crazy at these. Yeah. And so you listen to the producers and they talk about how there just was never any doubt. It's like they got 90% finished with filming the movie and suddenly there somebody was like what had happened if this hadn't worked out and they're like never even occurred to us oh my gosh and it's kind of the same thing with tim burton i mean they they had to guide him but they really let him create his own world and it's because this is this is another quote from david s goyer hire good people and get them out of the way yeah and that's what they did in these two circumstances they trusted their director Tim Burton, they trusted their director, Christopher Nolan, and what resulted were five of the most profitable movies in history. It's really amazing when a studio lets artists work. Yeah. And you and I have talked many times that movies are not as good as they used to be because the studio gets in the way and they don't let artists work. Right. The first four days of The Dark Knight, like filming, they didn't film one shot. Did you hear this? No. First four days, okay, they screened two movies a day with the entire cast Uh because they wanted to get the tone right. Now, imagine you're a Warner Brothers studio exec, and you're like, wait a minute, we're we're not filming? Where Everybody's just sitting around watching movies? And you you call the director, he's like, well, yeah, it's important to get the tone right. So here's what they watched. Heat, 1995. Cat People, 1942. They watched Citizen Kane, 1941. King Kong, 1933. Yeah. Batman Begins, 2005. Not logically, yes. Black Sunday from 1977. Yep. A Clockwork Orange, 1971. Absolutely. And Stalag 17, 1953. Two movies a day. Let's get the tone right. Before that happened, Jonathan was writing the character of the Joker. And Christopher Nolan does the same thing. He's like, here's the movie that you need to watch to understand the Joker. The movie, The Testament of Dr. Mabuse, 
by Fritz Lang that we talked about in our M episode, where he literally was about to be arrested because he put the words of Hitler in his psychotic villain in this movie. So what does Christopher Nolan say? If you want to know how to write a psychotic villain, go see that movie. And that's what Jonathan did. Fantastic. All right, everybody, that is going to do it for part one of our Batman comparison. Be sure to come back next week when we talk about all sorts of more things, Batman, super exciting. Can't wait to jump into it. See you then. We'll see you next week.